It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. The malaise of dealing with the uh, spring forward thing. Oy, this is always a hard week. Older I get, the more it feels like an entire week of jet lag. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God to see if it squares with what God's Word says in context or if people are pulling a fast one. Yeah, that's kind of what they do. You know, teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach, stuff of that nature. And you, you, along the way, you learn discernment. We try to have some fun, it, you know, although some people don't like the fact that we like to have some fun, but we like to have fun here anyway. And uh, and so it, this is just going to be <clears throat> a ride today. Now, today's uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith is going to be a little bit higher on the um, discernment scale as far as difficulty is concerned. Not the opening uh, segment, but um, the Stephen Furtick one for sure is going to be a little bit um, is going to be a little bit tougher, if you would. Uh, so, uh, le- <clears throat> in fact, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to start with a Perry Stone update. So we're going to go from, well, is it easiest to hardest? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> isn't it? So Perry Stone has been talking about prophecies regarding America and covenant breaking and stuff like that. And so we're going to we're we're going to listen to the latest episode of um, Manifest. <laughs> the name of his program is about as good as God knows. Yes, I I'm just saying. You if you get what I'm saying. So then we're going to switch gears. We're going to do a Paula White money-grubbing televangelist update and take a listen to a recent message that she delivered, which is entitled on on her uh, podcast feed, entitled Take Possession of Your Promised Land. Can you spot the problem with this before I even play the audio? Somewhere in there we'll take a, a break, and then we're going to do uh, you know, kind of a little bit of a longer Stephen Furtick update. And it's not that he's saying anything outrageous. In fact, um, you know what Stephen Furtick does in uh, this uh, uh, sermon that we're going to be listening to a portion of is, is a very, very subtle twist, and one that creates a false dichotomy. And this is a false dichotomy that I see over and again used by... Uh, people in the purpose-driven movement, uh, vision-casting leaders within the purpose-driven movement. And so we're going to uh, see if you can spot the false dichotomy. And then in hour number two, um, we're going to be listening to a sermon by Tim Lucas from Liquid Church, and it's entitled Five Love Languages. Now, if you may have read the book, The Five Love Languages. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how he tries to weave this book into his sermon, actually make it the kind of the cornerstone of his sermon. And there's something that he does in this that creates the problem. Aside from the obvious, you know, number one, you're not supposed to preach through somebody else's book. You know, yeah, you, you, the job of a pastor is to preach the word, not... 
uh, popular books in evangelicalism. And I understand the five love languages is very popular book. And, and the reality of the situation is, and I want to make this clear, is um, I'm not necessarily uh, critiquing uh, the book, The Five Lo- Love Languages. Instead, I'm I'm critiquing Tim Lucas's use of that book in a sermon. So does that make sense? If you've read The Five Love Languages and found it helpful and useful uh, in your relationships and things like that, something that kind of opened your eyes to make it uh, make it so that you can communicate to people more effectively in their love languages. And then, you know, I'm, I'm not critiquing that at all. In fact, if you found it useful, that's great. But, I, I, but that's not the issue that we're going to be addressing in the sermon today. So that's what we're going to do to start off today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're going to be starting with a Perry Stone update... That requires us to do this. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sore loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy. I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I. All right, that's uh, Leroy Pollins' version of I'm a Nut, and we're going to be listening to uh, the Manifest program, and this one's entitled The Prophetic Destiny of America, Prophecies from, not the Bible, the 1800s. Yeah. <clears throat> Can you spot the problem yet? So uh, here's Perry Stone to set up this uh, program. Here we go. I hope you're ready for another episode of Manifest this week as we share with you part five of a teaching that we're doing concerning the prophetic destiny of America, the breaking of covenants and commandments, and what will be the The breaking of covenants and commandments. Which covenant has the United States broken? Uh, Just so you know, I want to make this very clear. Um, I've double-checked with uh, the authorities that, uh, that keep track of these things. That the United States of America, when the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified, mm-hmm, that nowhere in the Constitution, when the Constitution was ratified, was there an article stating that the United States was signing on to the now defunct and abrogated Mosaic Covenant. Just, just you know, so that you know. And uh, I need to say this over and again due to the fact that you have people out there talking about Shemitahs and stuff like that. And apparently God is wrecking financial uh, institutions you know, every seven years because the uh, United States is not abiding by the so-called laws of the Shemitah. Yeah, and again, nowhere, nowhere did and never have the uh, founding fathers of the United States or any other uh, presidents and congresses since the United States was founded have they signed on to, you know, and become signatories on the Mosaic Covenant. Just want to make that clear. So so here we got Perry Stone telling because <laughs> United States is covenant breaking. No, which one? <laughs> the Mosaic Covenant? 
Yeah, they didn't sign on to the new covenant either. Now, there's a lot of Americans who are under the or who are under or in the new covenant, but you know, it's that's yeah. We continue. Result of such things. Now today we're going to be dealing with something that's very very unique, a little bit unusual, and we have taught this once at a major conference, but we've not taught it on the manifest telecast. I'm going to be sharing with you today the concept of what the Lord is saying to individuals about the United States, and we're, we, you know, what the Lord is saying to individuals about the United States. How do you know that these are true prophecies? Hmm those that I understand this, I understand, in fact, I made a list here, how that God does speak, according to Joel 2 and Acts 2, in visions and dreams. Not every vision and not every dream comes from the Lord. God spoke to Abimelech, giving him a warning dream. God spoke to Pharaoh, giving him a warning dream. We discover that Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 had to be interpreted by the prophet Daniel. Yes, there are prophecies in the Bible, just simply listing the different people who received prophetic dreams in the Bible does not at all prove that whoever you're going to be referring to in this these prophecies regarding the United States from the 1800s are actually prophecies from God. As men of Persia were also given dreams, and uh, Pilate's wife, we don't know if she was a secret believer in the Messiah, but Pilate's wife came to him and said, I've had a terrible dream this day, have nothing to do with this just, just man, speaking about Jesus standing at trial with Pilate being in charge. Now, Pilate, the wise men, King Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, and Abimelech, there is no record that they, when they had their dreams, were actually believers in the true God. However, every one of these dreams, especially the dream of Nebuchadnezzar's metallic image, are one of the greatest prophetic dreams in the entirety of the book of Daniel. So, this is the point I want to make because my father and I talked about this for years. God can speak to whom he wills. You know, yeah, he can. Um, a donkey spoke and put a preacher by the name of Balaam under conviction. My daddy. Yeah, this is true. And um, by the way, um, wondering if I'm going to end up playing this tomorrow. <laughs> Just because of this, um, at the uh, Albuquerque lectures that I you know just g- came back into town from, um, I actually recorded finally got a good recording of the uh, Lutheran exegetical case against the ongoing gift of prophecy, um, as laid out by a, a Douglas Judish in his book regarding you know testing the claims of the uh, of the charismatic gifts, and so I I'm wondering if I should play that tomorrow. Um, yeah, mm, just thinking about it. We continue. Say God's had a few donkeys that have preached since then. One time a rooster crowed. <laughs> I figured you'd like that, Bill. One time a rooster crowed and Peter repented. So God can use who he wishes. And going back to a more serious note, these individuals, many times there are individuals who see things and they come to pass. So dreams that come from the Lord can be a, a gifting that God... Yeah, Scripture makes it clear that just because somebody's so-called dream or vision comes to pass does not mean that that's actually from God. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when you read about the different pro- t- types of prophets, true prophets and false prophets from the, you know, the book of Deuteronomy... It's possible for somebody to say something's going to happen, and then it does happen, and they're still a false prophet, because then you got to check their doctrine. ...the person by a gift of the Holy Spirit, or I have met people, it's just a natural gift. They are born with a DNA in them of seeing things. One of the most unusual things that I came... They're born with a DNA of seeing things. 
Yeah, usually people who see things, they, they, that's not the DNA issue. That may actually be a mental issue, and they need help. Several years ago was an alleged series of visions that happened after the Civil War. Now, if you've noticed our set, and I, and I hope you've paid attention to it because it's very different. We have a large uh, replica of the Constitution. We have uh, Betsy Ross over in this corner sewing the American flag. We have the North and the South here. And this is not a, uh, a North and South issue, but this is representative of the Civil War that our nation fought. And behind us over here is other sets and props. But we did this to make it look like early America because we're talking about early part of America. In the 1800s, this material came forward and was published, and I want to tell you about a group of people that allegedly had a series of dreams in which they saw the latter days of the United States. And I'm going to read this to you, and I have a list here. There would be internal fighting among families as predicted by Christ in the New Testament. Number two, there would not be one big, there would not be a big war, but there would be war spreading out to states, to individual cities and neighborhoods throughout America. Number three, at the end of this nation, it's terrible. A secret band of people will sap the life out of the country. Number four, manufacturing would cease for a time and even farmers would allow their land to remain unfarmed. Uh, Here's another prediction. The sea will heave beyond its bounds, engulfing cities, quakes, hail, rain, and destruction. Here's one that's very interesting, Bill, in light of recent Mm -hmm. events. Mobs will roam the cities looking for money and food and destroying anyone who opposes them. We've actually seen that in some of our cities. Mm -hmm. Now, this one, and I want to be careful saying this because, again, this was a, a series of dreams in the late 1800s after the Civil War. The Indians, and when I, when I researched this, they were referring to the Hispanic communities in Mexico in the South would raise up and challenge the people. Now, that's interesting. Now, the next one says the government will abuse the Constitution. Now, remember, this is written in the late 1800s and go into severe debt. <laughs> Who gave these prophecies? We're over $18 trillion in our national debt. And by the way, the national debt does not count the state's debt, the city's debt. We are over $50 trillion in debt if we count everything. Most people do not know that. And people, uh, there would be politicians that would flee because of safety concerns. And finally, one more part of this, there will be an internal fighting that will cause the collapse of both federal and state governments. Now, some of this we're now, some of this we have seen, some of this we are now seeing, some of this has not yet happened. Who gave these prophecies and why should I believe them? As we talk about this, one of the predictions that came out in the late 1800s was uh, that there would be a group of people, and they would be common people in America, who would raise up to demand the, the restoring of the Constitution of the United States. Now, we're not going to get into politics here, but there have been organizations with different names who have come up and organized uh, uh, what we call a pro-Constitution platform saying that all levels of the United States government must go back to the Constitution and all that the founders based on. Because if we go outside the boundaries of that and you allow one person 
Uh, doesn't matter what party they're with if you allow one person. Okay, so notice what he's doing here. Okay, he he start. This is how the template works. He cites different biblical passages where there were dreams and visions. No doubt about it. These truly came from God. Scripture is clear that they did. No problem with that whatsoever. And so he basically says, see, in Scripture, people receive dreams and visions. And so we've got these people unnamed at this point who uh, who also received dreams and visions in the 1800s regarding the end of the United States. Let's look at their dreams and visions and what they saw. And, oh, look, there's parallels here between what's going on in the United States and what these people saw. And he's not telling us who these people people are, and all of this is kind of under the rubric of God is speaking regarding the United States of America. And instead, I feel like Perry Stone is pulling a fast one. And, uh, you know, this is not ministry. This is politics that he's doing, kind of guised as ministry uh, with the pretense of, oh, well, these are real prophecies that, you know, we should believe them regarding the United States of America. This isn't, oh, man. Um, you want the United States of America to um, get back to its constitutional bounds? Oh, okay. Well, may I suggest that the church do its job? Mm-hmm. The job of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. So um, I, the way I look at it is is that there's a direct correlation to the you know increase of evil in the United States and the collapse of the church in the United States. You want it. You want to see America turn around. Well, that means the church has got to become salt and light, and that means it needs to proclaim Christ crucified for sins, call people to repent and to be forgiven. In other words, people need to be regenerated. We can't expect pagans to bear fruit in keeping with repentance or the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives when they're unregenerate, right? So you know, you you want the United States to turn around. Don't sit there and talk about oh, so-called prophecies from the 1800s. Do what Jesus has told us to do. Make disciples of all nations. Stop monkeying with God's word. Stop, uh, you know, challenging the authority of God's word. Stop changing the message that we've been given from uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins to finding your purpose. Yeah, you want to see the United States turn around or, you know, any country start to, you know, shine with the light of repentant faith? Well, that means you have to actually preach the gospel. So, yeah, what we're listening to here from Perry Stone is dubious on all all kinds of levels. Number one, uh, the level, you know, oh, well, we got to talk about how the United States is, um, you know, covenant breaking. Which covenant did they sign on to and are now breaking? That's, I think, the logical question that has to be asked. Where did you get these prophecies? Who are they from? What's their theology? Why should I believe that they're true prophets? Yeah, you know, things like that. So, okay, so that's numero uno uh, on today's docket, and we're going to switch gears here, and we're going to do a Paula White update, and she is a money-grubbing televangelist, which requires us to do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round. You can 
One of the sets of music we use here at Fighting for the Faith for our money-grubbing televangelists. Now, what we're going to be listening to is a uh, recent message uh, from Paula White's podcast, Paula White's Hope for Today. You can find it at iTunes. And uh, Paula White is uh, teaching uh, a lesson. Now, it's listed in iTunes as Take Possession of Your Promised Land. Take Possession of Your Promised Land. And here's what it says. Join Paula as she teaches on I'm Getting to the Other Side. God will not speak to your future until you bury your past. Leave the land of wandering and take possession of your promised land today. Now, immediately, if you know your Bible, you should identify this for what it is. Narcissistic eisegesis. And this is one of the templates that you know money-grubbing televangelists use in order to whip people up into a frenzy and basically give them a theological bill of goods. And that's a good way to think about this, because this is not why God had the Old Testament penned so that you can stop your, you know, leave the land of wandering and take possession of your promised land, unless you're talking about how the promised land foreshadows the new heavens and the new earth. And that we receive the new heavens and new earth as an inheritance, as a gift by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us. You know, if you want to talk about the right way of understanding the promised land, you can talk about it in that sense. But what she's doing here, well, this has to do with kind of the temporal, if you would. The, you know, the, the here and the now, you know, the, the, the take possession of your promised land has to do with, you know, getting out of debt, having a good relationship, finding a, a house that, uh, you know, is, you know, got 10,000 square feet or something like that. That's really kind of where she's going to go with this. So without any further ado, here is Paula White and, and take possession of your promised land. Here we go. We're, we're in vision month and this whole year, this whole year, because 15 is a number of grace. You're going to see God's favor and God's grace in your life. And it literally means full circle. It means to come back to the. <laughs> oh man. We're right out of the shoot. So 15 means full circle, right? Yeah. And 42 is the meaning to life, the universe and everything, you know, the original intention and agenda that God has for you. And so this year, what we're doing is, is it, everything this year in vision is about time talent and treasure. It's about empowering you for you to empower other people. So the whole month of March and, and the rest of this month, you'll hear so much about that because some people think resources is just money, but money is really the, the least of your resource. There is treasure lodged on the inside of you that if you ever pull treasure on the inside of me, somebody get an ax, pull that treasure out and really develop through your time, your talent, your gifting, your purpose, money is the least of your problems money will find talent money will find treasure <laughs> money will find talent and this coming from a woman who uh, puts herself forward as a pastor and she's not because there is no such animal in scripture a female pastor no that doesn't exist so uh so there she is female pastrix oh yeah let money's the least of your worries but money will find talent oh wow yeah 
This is quite an ear-scratching message, don't you think? Money will find when you, what you invest your time in. And so the kingdom of God's important. So we're investing our time, 640 hours. We're believing God that we're going to make a difference for his kingdom. For a 1,000 families to be a part of New Destiny Christian Center. We're going to start renovations on the children's church. We're going to get our van. I mean, those things are starting to happen right away. So everybody has time, talent, and treasure. So by the end of this year, why am I telling you this? Because the end of this year, you, I want to see such a difference in your life that you go into 2000. 2016, not having a repeat year, but you're going to be exactly who God says you are right on track with where God says you should be. If you believe that, just say yes, real big. You believe it? All right. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I think so. Just give me a year, one year, I promise you. And so we, we've already found out Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Let's just look at it real quick before we get into our text says where there's no vision, the people do what? perish so they can yeah that's not even a whole sentence there yeah it's proverbs twenty nine eighteen that she's referencing there out of context and ignoring the rest of the of the passage itself here's what it says using the esv so if you ever hear anybody say listen where there is no vision the people perish that means we need vision casting leaders or you need a personal vision from god for your life so that you can just find your destiny and purpose and that you know that you're dealing with a wolf that's just the plain and simple. So here's what Proverbs 29:18 says, the entire sentence by the way. It says where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Aha. So the prophetic vision that we all need is the written word of God. That's what Proverbs 29:18 is teaching us, not that we're supposed to receive a, a you know a vision casting leader is supposed to receive a vision or you're supposed to receive a prophetic vision for your destiny in life, not at all. So, yeah, we've got problems <clears throat> continuing to mount here in this so-called sermon. Pass off boundaries, there's no restraint. It means there's no direction or focus. So vision, this is important. I want you to get this because when you start talking vision, you have to understand it means a revelation. It means a dream. How many of you have a dream? A dream. It means a dream. It means to mentally perceive, to gaze at, to look, to prophesy. So when you talk about... Now, all she's doing right there is listing off all of the different lectionary possible definitions of the word vision from Proverbs 29.18. But that does not tell us what that word means in this, in this particular context. The word, by the way, is kazon. And, uh, and so the prophetic vision that we need here is the, well, the revealed word of God written down for us, the law of the prophets... Uh, you know, in the apostolic record, with all of that written down for us, that's what we need. And for her to just list off all the po possible different lectionary definitions of the word kazon is not actually helping anybody understand what this passage is actually saying. What is a God dream? It's a God-inspired hope and expectation planted in the heart, which is not your physical beating heart. It's the way you perceive. It's the way you see things of a man and a woman made real in their spirit and in their mind by the Holy Spirit. So it's made real in your imagination. So God puts a Polaroid. You notice what she's where is she getting this? Not from this text. Right on the inside of you in your spirit. And it is more real than anything you can see on the outside. That's why a person who has a vision is a dangerous person in a good way.
I would say a person claiming to have a vision is a dangerous person, not in a good way, in a bad way. The enemy always wants to kill that dream. He wants to kill your vision because if you can't... Oh, brother. <laughs> oh, the enemy knows that you've received that destiny vision you know, from God, and, and now he's got to go out and kill that dream. No, actually, the, uh, the the devil's actually kind of in the business of sending you to hell. He's really all about killing you. See who you are what you're capable of doing and where you're going. You'll spend your life wandering in wilderness. You'll get hooked on surviving, but you were not designed. You were engineered for success by God. And I'm going to teach you some, some deep things today. Say, bring it on, Pastor Paula. So we already, we could say that a vision is a mental picture of my future that is powerful and forceful enough to mold my present. So no matter what your present bank account, relationship, situation looks like, if you have a vision, it's powerful enough to mold it, to, to make it come into compliance. So if you don't know where you're going, don't have a picture, you'll never get there. So let's go to... Now notice, pay attention to how the twist took place. She read half of a sentence out of context from Proverbs 29, 18, and then piled up all kinds of stuff on top of it in order to create the impression that the stuff that she said after she read that half of a sentence is what God's Word says and means there. But it doesn't say or mean any of the things that she said after reading the half a verse. So already the people there at uh, New Destiny whatever in uh, Florida, they are, they're in deep water. They've already taken the bait. And the hook is set, and uh, you know that—that's not a good thing. Deuteronomy 34, because if I had to give today's message a title, and I don't usually do titles, but I've been pretty good this past month. So if I had to give it a title, it'd say, "I'm getting to the other side." So I want you to look at three people. Say, "I'm getting to the other side." Whatever that other side is, come on, I'm getting to the other side. I'm going from poverty to prosperity. I'm going from depression to joy. Come on, I'm getting to the other side. Mm-hmm, yeah. Where's Jesus in all of this? You don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. And she's not really interested in preaching Christ correctly. What she's interested in doing is fleecing the people at their at that church. Come on, I'm going from down and out to up and standing in my purpose. I'm going from bondage to freedom. I'm getting to the other side. I'm going from the old to the new. You better just step. Say, I'm, I'm getting. Just let the enemy know. Step out. Walk with boldness. Say, I'm getting to the other side. That's a step of faith. Say, I'm going. I mean, say, come on, it's on. I'm going to the other side. Well, yeah, you say that all you want. It doesn't mean that it actually means anything. I'm going. I'm getting to the other side. Look at somebody. Say, I'm getting to the other side. Say, I'll, I'll take you with me. Pull them. Say, I'll take you with me. So she, she's just whipping them up into a frenzy distracting them. She's not actually teaching what God's word says at all. They say, but if you're going to be a doubter, come on, if you're going to sit there and try to kill my faith, uh, I'm sorry, but I've got to go. Don't hate because God benches haters. Say I'm getting to <laughs> God benches haters. Oh man. <laughs> wonder when I'm going to get benched, you know, cause I, of course everything I do, you know, I'm nothing but a hater to the other side. Say it till your spirit gets it. I, I need to work this for somebody because somebody's been in, in, in wilderness living so long. They're like, well, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. No, I'm getting. Oh, somebody's been in wilderness living. No, say it isn't so. Yeah. Again, these words, these phrases don't actually have 
any substantive biblical theological meaning. She's just kind of, you know, taken them out of the Bible and thrown them into the air, you know, without any without any anchoring into what those words mean or what God meant by them by having them put in the scriptures. Getting to the other side. I'm getting to the other side. I'm getting to the other side. I'm getting slap somebody right upside their head. Say I'm getting to the other side. So yeah, I don't go to church to get slapped upside the head. Let's go to Deuteronomy 34. You can read on the screens. This is Moses, and it's the last chapter of Deuteronomy. It's all about closure. And it won't make a lot of sense till the end of my message, and Joshua is all about new beginnings. So I'm going to show you through the Word of God how we're going to bring closure to some things today for you to get to the other side, to the new beginning God has for you. It says in verse 34, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo. Now, real quick, what... What is the other side that God does have for us? And see, this is where you need to have a real promise from God. Um, Where the Old Testament is type and shadow, the New Testament gives us the fulfillment. And there are types and shadows in the Old Testament that have not had their fulfillment yet, and they're not pointing to the here and the now. They're pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ someday is going to return in glory to judge the living and and the dead. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So if you want to use the Old Testament typologically, type and shadow, pointing us to the thing that we really do have a promise of, and the promise is of a heavenly kingdom, well, then you have you have something you know to share that has some theological substance. But that's not what she's doing. Oh, God's going to put a, a destiny dream down inside of you, and, and that means the here and the now. And God and the devil knows that if you have that dream, oh, you're dangerous. A person with a dream, oh, they're dangerous, and he's going to try to kill the dream, and you know, all this kind of nonsense, right? And you're working people up, and you're causing them to have faith in promises that God never gave. And so this is an important piece of this, is that when we talk about, you know, faith, faith has to have an object, and faith is really only as good as the object that, you know, that you have faith in. And so uh, if you're trusting God to deliver on promises that he never gave, God is under no obligation to deliver on those promises, and you're being deceived into believing that God is promising something that he has not promised. So, but what has God promised? He has promised eternal life. He has promised to meet our needs here and now. There are promises that we can hang on to, but God has not promised to put some destiny dream vision inside of you so that you know, that the devil's going to shake in his boots, knowing that you're a dangerous person, and that you know, and that somehow you, you've got to have the faith to decree and declare so that you can get to the other side. And by the other side, that means from getting where you are right now, just having this dream or vision to actually seeing it come about. Yeah, Scripture nowhere teaches that. And so these people are being made to trust in promises that God never gave. Oh, that's an important word. From the plains of Moab, let me hear you, to the top of Pisgah. Why couldn't they just call it like Orlando or something? I mean, across from Jericho, there the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan and all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea. Verse 3, the Negev and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. The Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants. How many of you have a promise from God? You know God's promised you something. Notice the narcissistic eisegesis. So apparently God's taking you up uh, uh, to the top of, you know, the allegorical Mount Nebo in your life so that you can get to the top of Pisgah 
and uh, and see the promise that God has given to you. No, see, this is you're reading stuff into this text that ain't there. I have let you see it with your eyes, vision, but you'll not cross over it, and I'll teach you why later. I'll get into that. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said, and he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. And the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now just flip over like one page and go with me to Joshua chapter 1. If we were reading the King James Version, it would say now after the death of Moses. Uh, The first, but in the NIV, it just says after the death of Moses. Read it real loud with me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, say it again. Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, say it again. Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people, grab somebody around you, say, I'm taking you with me. Say, I'm taking you into the... Uh, yeah, wow. Um, <clears throat> who was God talking to? Joshua. Where was Joshua at that moment in history? For real, literally outside of uh, Israel, uh, modern-day Israel, on the other side of the Jordan. Um, There's no promise here that God's taking you into your promised land and taking you out of your wilderness wandering, if by that you mean some dream or destiny vision that God's put inside of your heart, you know, the way that uh, Paula White tried to make uh, the, the previous chapter in Deuteronomy say. So notice what she's doing here. She's scratching itching ears, making God promise, you know, riches and wealth and all kinds of stuff. Oh, you know, and you know, and a destiny dream vision, all because she took Proverbs 29:18 out of context, read half of it, uh cited uh, Deuteronomy 34, read portion of it, and then you know, what she said had nothing to do with what that text is saying, and then and read uh the opening sentences of Joshua chapter 1. Again, Without any reference to what those passages really mean, she just went ahead and read everybody in there. She has everyone saying, hey, listen, it says here I'm taking you into the promised land. And you turned to your neighbor and said, I'm taking you with me. I'm taking you with me. Yeah, this is how the, uh, uh, well, deception template works. And so what what is this? Well, it's not a biblical teaching. This is a con. This is teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught. And I think you can kind of get the idea of of, uh, how she's doing it when you just take a look, slow down, and look at the template that she's following. The template's kind of important in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a Stephen Furtick update. We're going to, this is not a super major twist, but a very importantly bad twist. So stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. New from Los Lobos Ministry Records. An album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes the number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time entitled, well, you might just want to hear it for yourself. You hear what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You hear what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think you officially suck as a human being. I think you officially suck as a human being. Come with some games, we all I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, well, the church is infiltrated with wolves and false teachers and false prophets. Yeah, it's been that way since the time of the apostles. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, time for a Stephen Furtick update. Sing along if you know the lyrics. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man of God. Your hands strategic. The beaver was fake and hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor And you're so vain You probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain Bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Who me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep? Well, you told me we were made to serve and my God was all you'd need. But you Heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I'll bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, so what we're going to be listening to is the opening portion of this past Sunday's sermon delivered by Stephen Furtick. And there's a very interesting false dichotomy set up by him, which is a typical false dichotomy set up by a lot of guys like Furtick. In fact, Anne Stanley makes this same false dichotomy that we covered here at Fighting for the Faith. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And uh, what we're going to be listening to, the name of it, by the way, is The Genius of Jesus, listen to the subtitle, Passing Your Test. <laughs> yeah, he has a difficult time preaching anyone other than himself. So uh, without any further ado, here is Stephen Furtick and uh, the genius of Jesus passing your test. And listen to his story about how he used to do evangelism 
and see if you can uh, find the false dichotomy. Here we go. It's testing time. And see, when I was first learning how to share with people about Jesus, most of what I was taught was preparing people to pass the test to go to heaven when they died. And even the way we were taught, it was good, it was helpful, but you know, it's kind of interesting because I was taught this script to deliver to people. And you would say, when you were talking to somebody about Jesus, you would say, if you were to die tonight, which is always a great icebreaker, great way to start a conversation. (laughs) Whoa, you've got my attention. (laughs) Are you going to kill me? Are you psychotic? If you were to die tonight, are you sure that you would spend eternity in heaven with God? Now, if they say yes, there's a follow-up question. Now, notice um, this is referencing, um, I think this is D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion technique. And this is a question that you ask somebody in the context of evangelism. Evangelism, that's right. So the idea behind D. James Kennedy's approach was you, you know, he wants to kind of give you a way in which you can share the gospel with somebody so that you can tell them about Jesus's death on the cross for them. Call them to repent. Tell them that they're not good people, but that they are in need of a Savior. That's the whole idea. So the context is, is this a church service? Nope. And this is in the context of evangelism. A follow-up test to the test. So you got to test their answer to the first test. Second question. If you were to die tonight, everybody's always dying at night in these scenarios. No daytime deaths. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, what you're waiting for is them to give you a certain answer. And it's got to be almost word perfect what they have to say. Because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. If they don't get every word of the answer right, now, which is weird because I take issue at that particular answer because that sounds like the Pelagian heresy. If they, don't, they are flunking life, and it is your job. And you got to remember now, I'm 17 years old sharing this stuff. So as a 17-year-old, I have been given the answer key to the eternal mysteries of God. And I'm walking around with a with an answer sheet, checking their answer. If you were to die tonight and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? And if they say, you know, I'm a good person. Ah! Uh, and w- notice that he's telling the story in such a way that he's, in a, in a sense, mocking it. If somebody were to say, listen, you know, I know that I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I know that that person is in danger of the fires of hell because there's no one righteous, no, not one. Everybody who is is saved is saved by grace through faith. And because Christ died for their sins, they're not good. Christ only died for the ungodly and for sinners. That would be me. That would be you. So notice what he's doing here. Okay, But this is a little bit more duplicitous than that. There's a, a little bit more going on here. Because, notice this is the context of evangelism, he's in a sense kind of mocking the whole technique and saying, oh, you know, I've been given the answer, I'm going out and testing to see if people have flunked life. 
No, actually, the whole idea behind the diagnostic questions from Evangelism Explosion is to find out if somebody has penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, or if they're trusting in their so-called good behavior and believe falsely that they're a good person. They're not. They need to... They need to hear that they're not a good person, that they're a sinner, that they're ungodly, and that Christ bled and died for them, and they need to be called to repent and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But there's more going on. We continue. Big red X. And, and, and yet, most nights, we don't die. You ever thought about that? It's true. Most nights, I mean, that's important. Very important. Maybe the most important thing if we're eternal beings in a temporary body, what happens after this is important. But have you ever thought about the the days that we wake up and we didn't die the night before? See, that's a test too. And the more I study Jesus, the more I'm convinced that he wasn't just teaching people a plan for leaving earth after death, but he was teaching them a way of life for while they're here. And I didn't get this for the longest time. Yeah, now this is interesting. This is interesting. So, you know, I don't know if it's just the experience that he had in church growing up in Monk's Corner that the only thing they ever talked about was um, was eternity, but never talked about Jesus' teachings that addressed, you know, the implications that you know of the gospel itself it's weird it's just weird to me because um you know i spent a lot of time in the church too and um and uh it was life and doctrine it was both i mean even in the nazarene church it wasn't one or the other now granted the gospel goes into you know the rearview mirror once you've you know you know come down to the altar and made the decision uh, the gospel is pretty much in the rearview mirror. That's, you know, past history. You don't need to bring that back up again. Um, but, you know, in the Nazarene church, it's all about, you know, living and doing and obeying and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I find it hard to believe that Furtick, you know, his you know his only exposure to Christianity was a Christianity that only talked about eternity, never talked about anything that Jesus said that applies to our life right now. Yeah, it's weird. Just really, really weird. Something's going on here. And I thought that while Jesus would be my ticket out of this joint when this life is over, I didn't understand that he was my teacher for the time while I'm here. And that that's kind of what put this series in my heart, is that I believe a, a lot of people are trusting Jesus for the life after this, but haven't learned to trust him for the day-to-day life that you're living right now. Again, that's weird because how can somebody be a disciple of Jesus and read their New Testament, read the four Gospels, read the epistles, and think that, and come to the erroneous conclusion, you know, all this doctrine stuff and talking about eternity, I mean, when do we talk about the here and the now? We never ever get to do that. Who does that? You know, I'm, I'm... Calling the dubious, I'm throwing the dubious card here. Something doesn't smell right here at all, at like at all. And so notice that the context was evangelism. And now he's talking about in the church what we should be teaching. But if you're teaching the whole counsel of the word of God, you're going to address topics of doctrine and life, eternity and here and now, how, you know, what Christ has done for us 
and our secure standing before God, Coram Deo, and the eternal life promised to us, and now how we live out in penitent faith in Christ and what that looks like in bearing fruit of the Spirit. So, again, really weird thing going on here. But over and again, what I see in the purpose-driven movement are messages like this. And the reason for these messages and recurring messages along this line is to basically implant in the minds of the people in the audience, this is the reason why we don't talk about doctrine. This is why every sermon only deals with the here and the now and how we live currently. We don't talk about eternity. Everything is in the uh, is in the temporal, not the eternal. And so that, I think, is what's going on with this message. And if you think back to the Andy Stanley sermons that we reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith, the brand new series, I mean, similar thing going on here. We got we got to tear down doctrine, get rid of creeds, and you know, and just get to get back to that simple command of loving one another. But again, if you uh, listen to my lecture yesterday uh, uh, that I aired from, uh, you know, on, recorded in Albuquerque, but aired yesterday. Everything in the purpose-driven movement is geared towards the here and the now, meeting felt needs. And so what then that puts them completely out of step with how Scripture reads. And so you've got to come up with some kind of an excuse. Why, why are you always talking about the here and the now and never what Christ has done for us and talking about eternity and eternal life? Oh, it's real simple because, you know, and this is a story kind of along those lines. So these are the types of messages that are common in purpose-driven churches in order to, you know, if you would— quiet down the uh, concerned people in the audience who might be voicing their opinion, saying, he always talks and preaches about stuff that's really kind of second table of the law and always deals with the here and the now. When do we actually get to hear about what Jesus has done for us and how that impacts eternity? And why don't we ever get to hear the gospel preached to us as Christians? Oh, well, the reason why is because evangelism explosion, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, but I know lots of people who, who go to churches where they get the full counsel of the Word of God, and they evangelize using the technique, uh, you know, created by uh, G. D. James Kennedy, and you know, the the one is not exclusive of the other. And again, if you're teaching the whole counsel of the Word of God, you're going to get doctrine and life. Interesting stuff. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Liquid Church and uh, listen to a sermon about the five love languages. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Quiet on set! Lights! Camera! Action! Max 
We don't need lights. This is for radio. Fine. Strike the lights, people! Striking! Can we keep the camera? No. No camera. Oh. But can we at least have some action? Let me look at the budget. Yeah, we can have some action. All right, then. Places, everyone! Action! Now, what is it this time? Um, we're not actually doing a max holiday right now. We're not? Then what are we doing? Well, we're actually promoting Mac and Trio Inc. What on earth is that? It's a brand new company dedicated to providing quality and wholesome entertainment for all ages. That sounds interesting. Actually, Mac and Trio Inc. has already published three children's books that are available for purchase in both a digital and a hard copy format. And we even have a weekly online comic strip. Additionally, Mac and Trio Inc. is currently developing board games, card games, and even a children's television show. That sounds awesome! Uh, where can I go to see all these great things? It's really simple. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Mac and Trio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash M-A-C-K-I-N-T-R-I-O. That's a wrap, folks! of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Just to reiterate, this is not a critique of the book, The Five Love Languages. This is a critique of a sermon that decided that this is what should be preached during a Sunday service. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith word equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via liquid church in mountainside new jersey tim lucas presiding the name of the sermon is five love languages now remember yesterday's episode of fighting for the faith talking about opinio legis talking about the second table of the law that's what all of this is going to fall under the category of and there's an explanation as to why Tim Lucas is preaching on the book, The Five Love Languages. And it's critical that you hear it because then you'll understand where this thing goes off the rails. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Tim Lucas and his sermon entitled Five Love Languages. Here we go. All right, hey, welcome to Liquid, everybody. Let's give a special welcome to New Brunswick, Nutley, and Mountainside. Good to see you guys. Glad you're with us today, part three of Modern Love. Uh, and today we're going to learn about love languages, how to say those magic words, I love you, five different ways to your significant other. Whether Okay, now, 
There's so much wrong already. I, I mean, well, slow down there, dude. I can't comment on all of it. So, the, okay, notice that there. this is part three of a sermon series about relationships. Yeah, it's, it's held over from the month of February. It's one of the dangers of... Pre, of, of reviewing sermons from purpose-driven churches uh, that uh, may be touching on the month of February. But uh, so we, we got an issue here. So this is all about relationships. And so he's going to talk about five love languages and what's the problem. Well, you need to learn how to say, I love you in five different languages or love languages. Now, again, this is not a critique of the book. Okay. I know many people have found this to be a very helpful book in their relationships. The issue is that this is what's being preached during a sermon. Then this is a real big problem because the job of a pastor is to preach the word. But why would he do this? So the other two sermons, by the way, in the sermon series, uh, the first one's entitled, You Married the Wrong Person, Discover the Relationship Secret Every Couple Needs to Know. The second sermon in the series was entitled, Lord of the Rings, Science Proves What Scripture Preaches for a Relationship to Last. You Need to Put a Ring on It First. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, we've got some issues going on here. So second table of the law, and it's law-based for sure. And uh, this is not relationships in light of the fact that we're forgiven sinners, which the gospel actually is is more important in having a relationship survive than even putting a ring on somebody's finger. This is true. Um, the, The ability to forgive truly forgive your spouse and be forgiven by your spouse is a very critical part of a relationship lasting, and that comes as a result of the gospel. But uh, I, I, that's probably a sermon for another time. Let's continue with uh, Tim Lucas here and see what he's going to do with his five love, love languages and see if you can spot the reason why he's doing what he's doing. Well, I know somewhere, you know, Senora Marti is saying, oh, Timoteo, you know, should have paid attention in high school Spanish. Because learning a foreign language really opens up a whole new world. I mean, just take those three simple words, right? I love you. There are multiple ways that you can say I love you in a foreign language. For instance, take a look here. Uh, the words te amo. Anybody know that says I love you in? Anybody know? Spanish. How about this one? Je t'aime. Anybody know that one? French. Good. How about this one? Sarang hai. Anybody? That is Korean. That's Korean. Do you hear that one? And then finally, this is actually how you say I love you in Italian. So that's, um, that's nice. Nothing says love like a heart shaved and a hairy back. Thank you. Don't send the emails. Hey, the truth is uh, this. There are five primary love languages that are really universal for every human being on the planet. And these- Five primary love languages. Quick question. Where are the five primary love languages spelled out for us in Scripture? They're not. These five languages don't always use words to communicate love to your spouse or kids or significant other. This is the most practical message of our modern love series, and this concept really is revolutionary. I remember the first time that I read Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, years ago. He's a Christian marriage counselor, and he wrote this back in 1992. It sold over 10 million copies. It's been a perpetual bestseller on the New York Times list ever since. And the idea is so simple and easy to put into practice. It's really transformed relationships, saved marriages, and, and uh, even families. So if it's saved marriages and transformed relationships, well, then we can just preach f- about the five love languages rather than actually exegeting God's word on Sunday morning, right? 
Wrong. Families transform the dynamic. There's a lot of applications. And although Chapman kind of popularized the idea, he'd be the first one to tell you it's not really that original. In fact, he took it from the primary source of God's Word, the Bible. We put one on your seat today so you can grab that and open that up. This is really where we do our teaching from. This is very appropriate because God's Bible, it's really oftentimes called the divine romance or, or the book of love because it's the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation describing the length that God himself goes through to express his heart, his love for all of humanity. It's really the pursuit of God across time to woo our hearts with divine love through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there's a mention about Christ, and I'm not going to quibble with uh, his description of what Scripture is about. I would say that's you know kind of a schmaltzy way of putting it, but generally correct. Okay. And in 1 John 4, here's what we read. It says this. Now notice, where does he go? So this is a sermon series. First one is you marry the wrong person. Second one's the Lord of the Rings. And it's about you know making sure you have a ring on the finger for your relationship, uh, the need to get married and stop shacking up. Now we're talking about love languages. So he's not preaching exegetically through any particular passage of Scripture. So the first Scripture really mentioned is found in 1 John chapter what? 4. What about the the other three chapters? Was the epistle of 1 John meant to be read and used the way he's reading and using it? Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from who? From God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is, say it together, church, love. This is the only time in Scripture you will ever see an A equals B description of God. Did you know that? Now, pay attention to the text as he reads it because it contains the gospel in it, which is actually quite critical because we don't want to talk about Christian justification and sanctification apart from the cross and Christ's redeeming sacrifice. Otherwise, what happens is is that Christian sanctification turns into nothing but law and a to-do list, although... I think that's kind of where he's going to go with this, but watch how the, how the text will make it clear as to the reason why we love. Let's see what Tim Lucas does with this. And by the way, this is, you know, the, the reason why he's preaching on the five love languages, he'll state it clearly. And so, again, we'll get a second allusion to the gospel. It'll be mentioned a second time, It's and it's a little bit more than a gospel nugget. But the reason for the preaching on the five love languages Let's see what he says, but we're still getting there. Here we go. God has lots of qualities, right? He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-present. But you will never see a verse that says God is power or God is knowledge. This is the only time you'll see God is, and it's love. In other words, it's his core characteristic. It's his essential character. So the Christian God we worship is literally defined by love. And it's not this sentimental, schmaltzy love. It's a sacrificial love that looks a lot like Jesus. Look what John says, continues this, it says in the verse, this is love, not that we loved God, it wasn't about us, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So notice, the text itself brings up the fact that it's not that we love God first, but no, 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 not that we love, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So there's the gospel again, and you can't fault Tim Lucas for pointing this out. The thing is, what is he going to do with this? What I mean, that's kind of the high point. 
we love because he first loved us. Or you can say it the way uh, Jesus did. You know, you know, here's the commandment, I leave you. As I have loved you, love one another. All of this is flowing straight out of the cross. You know, from the, you know, from the blood and the water flowing from Jesus' pierced side, if you would. All of this, you know, our ability to love. And uh, the, the, what frames our love for others is coming and flowing through the gospel. So there he's read it. Um, what is he going to do with this? Is he going to make a lot about it, or is he kind of going to just say, well, there it is, and then move along? Let's see what he does. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to say that together. Love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So he's read the text, which contains the gospel and gives the literally the motive and the power, literally everything about why it is that we as Christians love. Love one another. This is one of the most frequently used phrases in the New Testament. In fact, there are over 100 love one another commands in the Gospels. It's not just a sentiment. It's a command. Uh, yeah, so we've, he's just, he just sees it as, as rank command, rank obedience. And yet all of this is imperative flowing from the gospel. Why? Because as God's children, we're made in daddy's image. And so love is supposed to be our number one identifying mark. Wrong. The text says that because Christ loved us and, you know, and was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not because God is love, but because Christ, you know, yes, God is love, but God demonstrates his love by sending his son to die for us. It's flowing from the cross. What are you doing with this portion of the text? You read it. Why aren't you commenting on it? They will know we are Christians by our politics, right? Or by our, no, by our love. It's our calling card, our badge as Christ followers. So how do we do this practically? How do we do this day in, day out as followers of Jesus who want to love our families well, want to love our spouses, our friends in a way that speaks their love language, that fills their emotional tank? So he sees it as command. He didn't really see it connected to the gospel. And so now the question is, how do we do this effectively? This is what we're supposed to be doing. So how do we obey this command? That's the reason why he's preaching on the book, The Five Love Languages, in order to help you be able to fulfill this command. I mean, there's the command, love one another. So how are we going to do this? Well, we need the five love languages. That'll make it. So if you learn the five love languages and apply these of love languages and start you know speaking them, then you'll fulfill the command here in First uh, John four to love one another. The key is the gospel. The key is Christ shed blood for us on the cross, His atoning sacrifice. He thinks that well, there's the command. We just got to go and do. It. He doesn't know what to do with the gospel. It was staring him right in the face. He read the text where the gospel is so clearly taught, and it it barely even registered on his radar. Might have been, you know, might as well have been a stealth fighter. Not even with words per se, but in a way that touches their heart. As I said, there are really five love languages in all universally, and I'm going to introduce you briefly to each one. We're going to weave scripture throughout this as we look to the model of Jesus, who was fluent actually in all five. So if you're taking notes, let me give a quick overview of each one. You can kind of fill these in as we go, and then we'll come back and illustrate each one. The number one love language I want to begin with is called words of affirmation. 
Are you somebody who loves compliments and verbal praise? Because this love language uses words to appreciate, to show affection, to build up and encourage. Mark Twain once said, I can live for two months on one good compliment. If your spouse is verbal, he or she will probably need more, okay? Words of affirmation, love language one. Number two, acts of service. For these people, actions speak louder than words. You can talk all you want, but nothing gets my motor running more than when my husband does the dishes or takes out the recycling, hubba hubba. Okay, check something off the honey-do list. Words are cheap. Acts of service speak volumes. So affirmation, acts of service... Yeah, just do these things in you while well, you're fulfilling the commandment there in 1 John 4. Love language number three, giving gifts. You know, for some people, it's really a tangible token. It doesn't have to be big or fancy, but it's something that says, hey, while we were apart, I was thinking of you. I, was, yeah, I had you on my mind. Giving gifts is a big deal to some people, but not as much to those who value quality Time. Love language number four. I'm going to use an hourglass and I'm going to turn this over to represent this because it is giving the gift of time. It's saying, I'm going to give you the gift of my undivided attention. It's investing the time to share thoughts face to face, actually. There's eye contact where our our souls connect, and quality time is one of the most precious commodities in our fast paced world. And then finally, there's number five physical touch. Now, turn to the person next to you and give them some physical touch. Don't do that. No, 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 no. Stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Don't do that. To this person, nothing. So just learn these five love languages and and start applying them to your life and, you know, intentionally focusing on them. And you will have fulfilled the command to love one another. Speaks more deeply, actually, than the holding hands, the, the pat on the back, the, the goodnight kiss. And guys, I know, what, I know what guys are thinking. This doesn't always mean sex, okay? It really is. It's the, it's the little social grooming, the arm around, the snuggling up. Children get this instinctively. They naturally covet embrace. But the truth is, so do many adults, both men and women. So these are the five core love languages, words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and then physical touch. Do you know what yours is? You probably have an idea what your primary love language is, but here's my challenge. Do you know which language your spouse speaks as his or her primary language? See, this is the challenge. Most often in relationships, it's not the same as yours. God wired men and women differently, and so you have to learn to be bilingual. You actually have to develop to speak a second language to communicate love to your partner. If you're a single person, do you know how your your friends or your date communicates? Again, this has a broad application in a lot of areas. With your kids, with your family, even in the workplace, except for physical touch. (laughs) Most adults have a problem. Now, here's a question I have for you, real quick. Learning the five love languages, do you need a crucified and risen Savior for that? Answer, no. Learning to love one another the way God... Christ has loved us, as John, 1 John 4 talks about. He, you know, Not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, can you love the way 1 John 4 says, apart from a crucified and risen Savior? No, you can't. We're not talking about the same thing here, then, are we? Both men and women. So these are the Five core love languages, words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and then physical touch. 
Do you know what yours is? You probably have an idea what your primary love language is, but here's my challenge. Is there a love language inventory that I can take? Language is, but here's my challenge. Do you know which language your spouse speaks as his or her primary language? See, this is the challenge. Most often in relationships, it's not the same as yours. God wired men and women differently, and so you have to learn to be bilingual. You actually actually have to develop to speak a second language to communicate love to your partner. If you're a single person, do you know how your, your friends or your date communicates? Again, this has a broad application in a lot of areas with your kids, with your family, even in the workplace, except for physical touch. (laughs) Most adults have a primary, number one, and then a secondary love language. And so here's what that means. If you want to touch the heart of your spouse, you will have to learn to be bilingual. You will need to learn a second or third language that fills their emotional tank and allows you to fill that command to love one another in meaningful ways. Now, before we... So, yeah, you got to learn those lines so that you can fulfill the command to love one another. Why is he not keying in on the gospel? Fill that command to love one another in meaningful ways. Now, before we unpack each, here's what I want you to do. I want you to click your pen. Because if you look in your notes, I want you to circle which one of these you think is your primary love language based on that quick description. Again, you may value two or three of these, but which one do you think is your number one language, the way you receive love from somebody? Just circle that. And then if you're married or dating, or you're here as a couple, I want you to do something dangerous. I want you to put a... How did the early Christians fulfill this command to love one another without the love languages? Hmm? Let me read the text again. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the love that's being talked about in this text is a love that flows from God to us, then through us, all in light of Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, we, yeah, he just, well, you got to love one another because, you know, love is, if you don't love, then you're not of God. So here's some practical steps so that you can apply this to you, so that you can obey the command. Opinio legis is in the driver's seat, worldview-wise. He read the gospel, didn't know what to do with it, doesn't see that as the key to understanding the love that's being discussed here. Uh, Just says we got to love, so we got to, we got to help our people obey this command. So we're going to give them the five love languages. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I want you to do something dangerous. I want you to put a star next to the one that you think is your partner's primary love language. Just put a little star next to it. Be careful, guys. If you're careless, you may see stars. No peeking, all right? Now go ahead and show it to your partner, what you circled for yourself and then what you starred for them, okay? Just take, take a minute to do that. And the question is, were you right? Because you may think it's one thing, but for Colleen and I, this little quiz was revealing. Because when I first saw these categories, I was like, no-brainer. 
physical touch. Like a lot of guys, I appreciate a nice scalp massage. There's nothing I like better than when we crash on the couch, we turn on the TV, and I lay my head in her lap, and she goes like this. And she's the only person on the East Coast who can touch my hair and get away with it. I love it, all right? But surprise, surprise. Last week, we took a free online quiz at fivelovelanguages.com. We printed the link in the bulletin. It takes less than 10 minutes, totally free. You can do this whether you're married or single. They simply give you these A and B choices about what you prefer, and then you get a personal profile of your love language in priority order. And much to my surprise, my number one love language was not physical touch. It was actually words of affirmation. I got a ranking of 10, and physical touch was a close second, ranking of nine. I'll tell you what Kyle got in a minute. But it made me see this first category in a whole new light. Because when you think about words of affirmation, well, let me put it this way. King Solomon, author of Hebrew wisdom literature, author of Proverbs, the wise man, listen to what he said. The tongue has the power of what? Life and death. Words of affirmation are all about speaking life to your partner. Verbally affirming, praising, building them up with your words. Verbal praise is a powerful communicator of love. It's expressed in very simple, straightforward statements such as, hey, I love the way you play with the kids. You know, you're an amazing dad. Kids, call the fire department because your mom looks smoking hot tonight. That's amazing. Hey, thanks for getting a babysitter lined up for this weekend, you know? I want you to know, I don't take that for granted. You do that so elegantly. Can I ask, what would happen to the emotional climate of your relationship if both of you spoke and heard words of affirmation daily? Now, there it is. What would happen if, now, that this, in a sense, this is kind of casting the vision of the law, if you will. What would happen if, imagine how the world would be, this is kind of a sales pitch to kind of get you to agree to, you know, apply these principles so that you can fulfill this command. And if you do that so elegantly. Can I ask, what would happen to the emotional climate of your relationship if both of you spoke and heard words of affirmation daily? The tongue has the power of life and death. If this is your primary love language, as it is mine, hearing the words, I love you, is nice. But when you hear the specific reasons behind that, your spirit soars. On the other hand, criticisms or insults can leave you shattered. Encouraging, affirming words truly lift, up, lift you up. And I'll admit it, when I first heard this description, I said, well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, to be honest, you know, most days I don't really care what people think. But then I re- read that there was a dialect of love language known as simply encouragement. And we use that word for granted, but look at the word encourage. You know what it means? To pour courage into somebody. In other words, you speak a bold word that gives a fresh injection of courage into their soul and inspires them to reach their full potential. Colleen does that for me. Here's evidence, right? We just put out this little book. You married the wrong person. You know what? I've been told for years, Tim, you should write a book. You know, when are you going to write a book? I was an English major. I had actually a concentration in journalism, so writing's always been like a passion for me. But I always would tell people, I'd be like, dude, I write a 20-page sermon every week, okay? Enough. That's enough. Thank you. And other pastors would say that, or publishers would say, you know, what, you want to write a book? But I ignored it for the last seven years because I was focused on preaching and building this church. But about a year ago, Colleen and I were away for a weekend, and we had no kids, so I was thinking clearly. And, uh, and she said, you know what, honey? She said, I think it's time you finally wrote a book. I said, really? She said, yeah, the kids are settled in school. You know, our marriage is, is, is doing well, and, and you have a gift. You, you, your words paint pictures that people can see, and I, I, think, I think you should share it. And I was like, really? You think so? And she said, I know so. She goes, and I'll help you. She said, if you need extra time, 
I'll actually watch the kids so you can get the ball rolling. He said, I believe in you. I really believe in you, sweetheart. You can do this. Let me tell you, somewhere in my soul, like a flip switched. I wrote the outline for the book that first weekend. I got up several days early and weeks in a row to crank it out. And all of my fears, like, you know, hey, what if I don't have time? What if it sucks? Just sort of melted away. Catch this. My, my wife's words of encouragement literally gave me the courage to write the book that's the basis for the series. That's why I dedicated it to her. To, to Colleen, because I see Jesus more clearly because of you. No one else in my life has the... Yeah, I'm not seeing Jesus clearly from you at all, Tim. Because... Um, you read the text about the great love that God has for us, and all you saw was a command, and you think that if I learn the five love languages, that somehow that's the key to being able to obey this command. Life's words of encouragement literally gave me the courage to write the book that's the basis for the series. That's why I dedicated it to her, to Colleen, because I see Jesus more clearly because of you. No one else in my life has the power to light the fuse the way my spouse does, and I'm guessing it's the same. For many of you. Most of you sitting in this room have more potential than you will ever develop in this lifetime. And every single one of us have areas that we feel insecure. We, we lack courage. We, we fear failure. Words of affirmation light the spark. Picture it like this. Your spouse has an unlit fuse, and there's an area of insecurity that is waiting for you, a spark of your words to ignite. Maybe your wife needs to enroll in a course to earn her degree or to get her certification as a trainer. Maybe he's going through a tough season at work and needs to know how much you appreciate his effort to pay the bills and provide for your family. Words of affirmation say the words, I love you, by saying, I believe in you. I see your sacrifice. I see what your potential is, and I am so proud of you. Uh, On the other hand, if your spouse has a critical tongue, it is toxic to the relationship. If you say to your wife, you know, hey, it'd be nice to have a home-cooked meal, you know, now and then, you are poisoning the well, literally. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Because sometimes our words say one thing, but our tone sends a double message. For instance, I was talking to one couple, and the wife wanted to, they had a big, he was out of work, and she was encouraging him to find another job. Now, let's make something clear. There is nothing wrong with watching your tongue and being encouraging rather than critical. These are actually good skills to have in a relationship, especially if you want it to last any amount of time. So we're not being critical of that. The issue here is that all of this is being given as the solution. This is how you fulfill this command. And yet that passage that he read, you can't fulfill that command apart from Christ and him crucified for our sins. It's the love of God that flows to us and through us that's, you know, that sacrificial love. And so, yet we're talking about two different things here. Big problem. We continue. For instance, I was talking to one couple, and the wife wanted to, they had a big, he was out of work, and she was encouraging him to find another job. And she said, uh, you know, all I said to him was, sweetheart, don't you think it's time to find a job that pays more, you know? And she thinks she's encouraging him. But to him, it sounded like contempt, like it was very guilt-inducing. On the other hand, if he said, you know, I've been thinking about starting my own business or something, she can respond with words of affirmation that say, you know what, if you decide to do that, I can tell you one thing. I know you'll kill it. You're going to be a success because that's one of the things I love about you. When you set your mind to something, I know you will do it. And if that's what you want to do, I will support you 100%. Verbal praise is far more powerful than nagging words. 
The same guy who wrote this proverb, the tongue has the power of life and death, is the same guy who wrote Proverbs 21. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, guys, don't, don't, don't put a star next to that. Like, that's my new memory verse, man. That's my memory verse. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you use flattery to manipulate your spouse. But when husbands and wives argue or become critical of one another, it doesn't matter how, like, macho the man seems or, like, how much of an alpha male, you know. This is what he feels like when the woman nags him, all right? This is it right here. So much for king of the jungle, okay? Tone matters, ladies. Just look at that, man. No matter how tough your guy is, you know, the wife who says, you know, do you think you'll have time to, to, to clean the gutters this weekend? Well, that's a loving request. But the minute you turn it, you know, if you don't get the gutters clean, they're going to fall off the roof, you know? There's trees growing out of them. You've ceased to love and become a domineering spouse. Words matter. Think about this. They can inspire your partner's potential and fill their tank or deflate him or intimidate her. So let me give you a challenge if you're like, that's my spouse. Words of affirmation. First thing is this. You make a list of your spouse's strengths. And if, and if, if you, I want you to tell them at least once a day, specifically, what you appreciate about them. I mean, be specific. You know, I love how you always make time to read with the kids before bed, even when you're bone tired. Or you know what? You're really keeping up with the job search, and I know it's going to pay off for you. And secondly, do this. I want you to thank them for something they just do routinely and wouldn't expect to be complimented on. Like, hey, you know, every time it snows, you salt the walk and get up early and turn my car on. Thank you for that. Make a list, and it will transform the emotional climate of your marriage. When I described words of affirmation um, was my number one love language as a guy, I assumed it'd be the same uh, for Colleen, um, but not so much. (laughs) The love language of one person is actually typically not the one of the other. Love languages are part of your DNA. In other words, you're born with it. And they're typically imprinted and reinforced by the family that you grew up in. Now, I grew up in a very verbal home, uh, but Colleen grew up in one that, where actions spoke louder than words. And her primary love language is number two, acts of service. Yes, this is a toilet brush. <laughs> and you may ask, like, are you serious? Can cleaning the toilet or, or vacuuming the floor really be an expression of love? My wife speaks for many when she says, yes, absolutely. Guys, this is my magic wand at home, okay? Anything you do that can ease the burden that's weighing on an acts of service person will speak love to them. The words they love to hear the most are, can I do that for you? Let me help with that. I think of the couple named Brad and Michelle. I want you to imagine Michelle sitting up you know, on, her, on her couch in her living room. And she's typing away on her, on her laptop. And as she's doing it, she, she smiles because she can hear downstairs in the basement where husband Brad is sorting the laundry. And she smiles because over the last four weeks, Brad has uh, cleaned their condo. He's uh, cooked dinner. He's run errands. Why? All because Michelle was working on her thesis for grad school. And it made her feel profoundly loved. See, acts of service means you do the things that will make your partner's life easier. And it doesn't actually have to be big. <laughs> Most of the times, it's real small stuff. It's emptying the dishwasher. It's changing the baby's diaper. It's picking up a prescription. It's keeping the car filled with gas, paying the bills, walking the dog, shoveling the walk. And all it requires is energy, effort, and follow-through. It's funny, because when Colin and I first started dating all those years ago, we were in college, and I didn't have much money, but I, you know, I could spare five bucks in college. And there was this cheap little, cheap little convenience store by my apartment. And so every Friday after class, I would go, and for $5, you could get a dozen mini roses. Not the full ones, the mini ones for five bucks, okay? And I thought, 
What girl doesn't want roses? So I, uh, I, at first, Colleen was thrilled. I was like, these are fish. She's like, Tim, these are beautiful. These are amazing. That is so thoughtful of you. And I was like, yeah. Next Friday, five bucks. I go get my roses, and I bring them to Colleen. And she's like, oh, roses. I was like, you like them, right? She's like, yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Guys, you know what happens if something works. <laughs> Once, twice, you do it a third time. So third week, I get a rose. She's like, thank you for those. What a surprise, you know. And I could see, like, kind of the impact was diminishing. And so, uh, you know, so I stopped doing roses. And the next Saturday, it was just so funny because her roommates and her, they were painting their apartment. And I showed up to help. And I was like, I was like well, let me, I'll prime the room for you guys. And I primed it with my roller. I cut in on the trim and everything. Woof! You would have thought I painted the Sistine Chapel, man. Girlfriend was all over me. It was like, so I was like, forget the roses. Forget that, man. Give me a paintbrush. It was when it clicked. That's when I discovered my wife's primary love language is acts of service. And that's how it is for a lot of men, women and men. And this is, should come, guys, as a second nature to those of us who are Christ followers. Remember, Jesus summed up his entire purpose of his life this way in Mark 10. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want you to think about this. As okay, so there's the gospel, give his life as a ransom for many. Are we going to key in on really what that means? I think it would be important, don't you? We continue. Now, I want you to think about this. As Christians, our model for service is Jesus. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And when he got his followers together in a room and said, I want to show you how much I love you, what did he do? He took off his outer garment. and he- Oh, man. Uh, you just talked about him giving his life as a ransom for many. Can we talk about that a little bit and how we all need to hear that as Christians? Because right now you're preaching really heavy law. And, and not that there's anything wrong with preaching heavy law. The issue is, is that the solution is just me changing my behavior. Yet the gospel is staring you right in the face in the passage you read from Mark that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Why would he need to do that? Because we don't love our spouses or anybody else properly. We have sinned against them. And by sinning against them, we sin against God. Don't you think that might have something to do with and have a bearing on how we love one another if we truly understand the magnitude of God's love? And he got on his feet, and what did he do? He washed their feet, the dirtiest, smelliest, skankiest part of their body. He said, this is what love looks like. Men, that is your model when the baby is crying and needs his diaper changed. That's how you love your wife like Jesus. That's what a servant leader looks like. He cleans the table. He literally takes the the stinky trash out. So if you're married, can I ask this? What would be three acts of service that you could do this week that you know would make your spouse feel loved? If they value acts of service above everything else, what could you do to fill their tank? Just jot down two or three ideas in your notes. I'm going to challenge you to do one this afternoon because it's Sunday, all right? (laughs) So Jesus' death on the cross just serves as, that's just example. Now get busy. No words of comfort, no absolution for not loving your spouse properly or not fulfilling the command to love one another. <sighs> Last week, I saw a great picture on Facebook from a, uh, a couple at our Mountainside campus who have been married 40 years. Take a look at this. Margie Keene posted this picture of her husband, Tom, standing next to a vacuum cleaner with the caption, Love is helping with the house cleaning on Valentine's Day. All right? Now, I realize Tom doesn't have a huge smile on his face. I just want to acknowledge that, all right? But the man's been married 40 years, all right? So he knows a little something, guys. And ladies, 
If you, if, actually, let me explain to the guys before I go on about this. Guys, if you're going to express your love to an acts of service woman, you got to do it humbly. Don't act like you deserve a medal, okay? I saw another Facebook post that captures what a lot of guys do. A husband is someone who, after taking the trash out, gives the impression he just cleaned the whole house, right? Love doesn't make a big deal or draw attention to itself. You just love the girl and you let her love you back. Now, I'm going to, I have, <laughs> in my notes, I have the letters TMI, and I'm like, is this too much information? I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, in the Lucas home, okay, let me just tell you, okay, as a physical touch guy, when I'm interested in turning things on in the bedroom, you know what I do? I get busy in the kitchen. This is the first thing I do. I, I've stopped. I've stopped guessing, like, maybe tonight, you know? Now, what I do is I literally go in, I get the yellow gloves, man. And I start doing the dishes, and sooner than not, I feel this arms around my waist and the breath in my ear. Oh, I love a man with spandex, you know, on. This is how foreplay starts in Lucas' home with a snap of the yellow gloves, all right? It took me five years. That's too much information, right? See, some of you are like, you should have kept that to yourself. Uh, that's, it, I just wish I had known acts of service was my wife's love language at the beginning. But guys, you've got to follow through. The girl will call you on it. Actually, Kyle got me pretty good last week. She posted this picture on Instagram. Uh, it's a photo of our kitchen with a caption. Tim said, uh, kids, let's clean up. They happily said, okay, did this, and all went to relax in the living room. Hashtag, you married the wrong person. And you can see the dishwasher is open. The plates are piled high. You know, I had, like, all these good intentions, you know, but I lack the follow-through. I blame, you know, my ADD. It's like, come on, kids, we're going to help a Shark Tank on? What? You know, kind of like, you've got to follow through and uh, understand there's always a backside. Broken promises and laziness will cancel out all your goodwill. And so here's a challenge. Ask your partner tonight, today, what are three things you would love for me to do during this next month? And over the next three, three weeks, you just make them happen one after the other. You plan your strategy for a month of love and get ready to live with a happy spouse. Now I'm going to move very quickly through love language number three, giving gifts, because it's self-explanatory, right? I mean, gifts are simply a visual symbol of Love that says, while we were apart, I was thinking of you. It doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be fancy or even cost any money. <laughs> One of the best call, gifts Kyle ever gave me was a framed picture of us hiking at our favorite place in Mohonk, you know? A gift is just something you hold in your hands and say, you know what, look, he, he was thinking of me. Or you know what, she, she remembered me, you know? Gifts come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. Some can be purchased, more, some of them found, and others, the meaningful ones, made. Most moms, if you're a mom, you remember the first day your child came in with a flower from the yard, even if it was a worthless dandelion, right? The husband who picks up a bird feather while he's out jogging and brings it home to his wife, that's expression of love. The wife who writes a letter to her husband telling him how much she respects and admires him, that is a letter a guy will actually keep for life. I just got a few things on my, on my office shelf at home. I got a baseball, a signed Yankees baseball because it was a gift from my dad. I got a Father's Day card that was written by my daughter, the picture. I got a framed picture from uh, our Liquid Water 5K uh, with some of our volunteers. That, that means a lot to me. All of those gifts were so cheap, but they're precious to me because they're invisible tokens of people I care about. So don't make the mistake of thinking this love language is about materialism. It's as little to do with money and everything to do with thoughtfulness and effort that the gift represents. Now, it's funny. When Colin and I did the quiz, for both of us, this love language was dead last on our list. We're at for both of us. We're just not into stuff that much. We prefer time together, um, experiences like going out to eat or relaxing. So on Valentine's Day, we don't do jewelry. We don't do chocolates. We don't even really give gifts for birthdays. 
But husbands and wives whose primary love language is gifts, birthdays, anniversaries, special occasions are critical. Because the perfect gesture communicates, I know your heart. I understand you. And I extended myself to care for you. The best gift I ever received, you're going to laugh, five years ago, was a plain brown bag. And you're like, what's the big deal about that? Brown bag, brown handles, right? It's actually not very expensive either, canvas duffel bag. But Colleen got it for me one day. She came home uh, from the mall for no reason at all, right? It it actually means a lot to me. And the reason is because I never really actually had a a guy's like travel bag. So whenever I would fly somewhere, go somewhere on business, I would take whatever bag was available. I I guess we're done exegeting the scripture. I mean, wow. And notice, I mean, even the cross. It's just example. You got to follow. Get busy. You got a command that you need to obey. Here's how you obey it. And no absolution for not having obeyed it. Wow. We continue. Available in our house. And because I got a wife who's super stylish and a daughter who likes that kind of stuff, I often found myself traveling with this, a hot pink Vera Bradley bag. There it is, all right? And I sucked it up, this true story, until one day airport security in Newark stops me. And the guy goes, sir, is that your bag? I was like, yes. He's like, that's your bag. I was like, yes, it is. He goes, Jerry, look, we got a fashionista here, you know? Again, I don't care about appearances, you know? But I went home and I told Colin, she remembered that. And one day she came home from J. Crew and she goes, guess what? This is for you. I was like, a big boy's bag? Yeah, a big boy's bag. And she gave me that bag. You know what? It wasn't pricey, but it was personal. It made me felt known and cared for and loved by my wife. It was also a splurge. It's just something I'd never buy for myself. I don't buy that kind of stuff. If your spouse is a gift receiver, surprise them for no reason at all. Bring home a potted plant or their favorite cupcakes. Pick up a pizza for dinner. Budget money for little extras here and there to fill their love tank. And here's a tip. Keep a gift list in your smartphone. Are you like me, kind of like, you know, your, your mind's a sieve. You're like, oh, I wish I had thought of something. Every time you hear your spouse say, oh, you know, I really like that. Or I'd love to try that someday. Record it in your smartphone. That's what I do. I just record voicemails and I boomerang it, which probably cancels out now. That, that's my technique. Uh, but they say that, you know, uh, listen carefully. You will compile a list and it will come in handy when a special occasion rolls around because you won't be scrambling. They will actually say, oh, are you, me, how, did, how did you know? How did you, how'd you remember that? I know because I care. And I remember it because I love you. That's what a love language does. The one that I want to kind of highlight now is this hourglass that's been ticking since I've been talking, and there's not a, a lot left, but that is quality time. And I'm going to let the sand pass through because it really is all about giving the gift of your full, undivided, uninterrupted intention. You're giving them the gift of time. You're all there. Here's what it means. The TV is off. Your fork and knife are down. Your cell phone is away. All other tasks are on standby so you can do one thing. Spend QT, quality time together. Sharing thoughts and feelings face-to-face. No screens, no distractions. Your souls connect your known. Now, here's the deal. Quality time is not most entertainment activities. It is not sitting on a couch watching TV. When you spend time that way, HBO, Netflix, they have your undivided attention, not your spouse. But it's about doing something together that promotes a two-way conversation, focused attention, where you're maintaining eye contact, and you're actually listening, guys, for feelings, not just facts. There's an exchange of emotions going on, and that's a powerful expression of love for almost every human being. 
If you take time and you go through the Gospels, I printed these in your notes. You can look them up when you get home. You're going to see Jesus invest in tremendous amount of quality time with his disciples. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be known intimately by them. And you can look up these scriptures, but you'll see Jesus is always peeling away to spend quality time first with his father and then with his disciples. Don't you think um, quality time with his disciples gave the disciples the ability to understand Jesus, who he is and what he's here for and what he's done and, you know, what he taught? Don't you think we can have some of that intimate time with Jesus, you know, by putting away the five love languages and opening up one of the gospels and actually working our way through a text? Because even though he was training them for ministry, he realized they need to spend time face-to-face to feel his heart. So here's a question for you. Do your spouse and kids or friends get upset when you don't stop your work, what you're doing, to spend dedicated time alone with them? Or are you always multitasking? What's that, sweetheart? Checking texts, doing dishes, or do you give them your undivided attention? Quality time ranks second and third on the list for both Colin and I, so it's important to both of us. And we do a few things that always highlight quality time for us at Priority. We always take walks. We take a walk at least once a week together. No kids, no phones, just we walk, no matter how cold it is. Secondly, we meet at a coffee shop or a restaurant at least once a week. We net, we, away from work, <laughs> away from the kids. And then we schedule one weekend away every single quarter. I used to be reactive, wait till we were all you know, toast and burnt out, and then I would do it. But now I proactively schedule that before because we both have plate loads of work. We both have heavy schedules. But quality time is like oxygen to our marriage. She's got a ton of girlfriends. I'm ADD, so we got to be intentional about focused time together. Last week, we actually had a little breakthrough. She's into home decorating. She's been kind of focused on our daughter because our daughter's tall and her room's small and all that stuff. And she watches all those HGTV shows, you know, the design shows. Like, here's how you can transform the room. And I, honestly, I don't care. I don't pay that much attention. Not a passion for me. Uh, but last week, I could hear the stress and the worry in her voice over this. And so I actually put down my laptop. I was doing emails. And I bored down and drilled in. And I looked at the room designs and all this stuff. And we sketched some stuff out. It took about 90 minutes. And at the end of it, I will never forget this. She just looked and she goes, thank you. Because I feel like you're finally in this with me. You're in this with me. That's the message of quality time. That's the magic. The other person says, I finally see, you know, you're interested and you're available. Now, men, this can be hard for us to visualize at times, and I want you to understand what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you just sit there and stare into each other's eyes. Quality time. It means you're typically doing something together, but you're giving your full emotional investment to your spouse. You actually lean in and you listen to your partner. What she's saying behind what she's saying, or you ask questions that draw him out if he doesn't speak too much. And guys, understand, when you talk, you're not trying to solve anything for the woman. You're just trying to relate to her. Again, very hard for guys to understand because we're trained to analyze problems, create solutions, But marriage is not a problem to solve. It is a relationship to experience. And most often, the woman wants you to feel what she's feeling, what brings her joy, what causes pain. Even if she's hurting or she has a problem or she's stressed or she's struggling, she doesn't want you to fix her. She wants you to feel her. See if this looks familiar. It's just there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And 
I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on! Ow. If you would just don't. Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on? You can work it out. The sooner you learn, it's not about the nail. The better off you'll be. Guys, when a woman's hurting, she doesn't want advice. She wants sympathy. Don't try to fix her. She'll fix you, man. The sooner you realize it's not about the issue. You've got to speak her native tongue. You've got to lean in and let him or her understand. You understand the hurts, the stress, the pressures of life. That's what quality time is. It's intimacy. You see into me, and it's scary, guys, but it's worth it. A relationship calls for back and forth with the goal of understanding your partner's feelings and emotions, and that can be hard. Because Chapman notes that there are basically two different personality types. There's the Dead Sea and the babbling brook. You guys know what the Dead Sea is in Israel, right? It's the, the lake where water goes in, but nothing comes out. The Dead Sea personality is the man or woman who doesn't really say much. They're ha- now imagine you're in this congregation, and this is your pastor, and he's preaching, because this is what's coming from the pulpit. It creates kind of a, a tacit belief within you that, okay, if I apply these things to my life and sort things out with the missus and learn how to speak her love language— that this is going to, uh, well, make it so that God and I are okay, right? This is what God wants me to do. So if I do this, God will be okay with me, and uh, and everything will be good between God and I too, right? You see the problem here? The gospel showed up in the text that he read. He never really commented on the gospel, both times. And the gospel got turned into just an example of that you need to follow because you've got to obey this command. They're happy not to talk. They like to keep quiet, let the other person talk. Nothing comes out of them. But the other person I type is the babbling brook. Whatever they see or, or feel or experience, they got to immediately tell somebody about it. And it comes right back out of their mouth, and they need to let others know how they feel. They're verbal processors. And the problem is, many times, a dead sea will marry a babbling brook. Because when they're dating, it seems like a perfect match, right? If you're a dead sea and you date a babbling brook, you will have an amazing date. Because you're like, I don't even have to worry how to start the conversation like how to carry on with this and everything. She, she does all the talking. All you have to do is nod your head and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you'll have an amazing time the whole evening. And you will go home and you will say, what an incredible woman. And the babbling brook will go home happy and she will say, he is amazing. We talked for three hours and he listened the whole time. The problem happens five years into marriage because that day then the babbling brook wakes up and he says, you know what? We've been married five years and I feel like I don't know him. Or the Dead Sea will say, you know what, I know her too well, and I wish she would just stop the flow once in a while and give me a break sometimes. The good news 
is that dead seas can learn to talk and babbling brooks can learn to listen as we sacrifice to speak your partner's love language. New patterns of intimacy are possible, but you have to be intentional. So here's your challenge. If your spouse's love language is quality time, I want you to think of an activity that your spouse enjoys but brings you little pleasure. What's one thing your spouse enjoys that you're like, I'm really not into that? Going to a craft show, you know, attending a college football game or nature photography. I want you to tell them this week, say, you know what? I'm trying to broaden my horizons and I'd love to do that with you this month. And I want you to go all in. The activity is incidental. You are giving them the gift of time together. Now, as you can see, we are out of time, but suffice to say, a person whose final love language is physical touch is very touchy. Holding hands, arm around the shoulder, hugs, massages, always to show care and affection. It's interesting, research shows that babies who are held and stroked and kissed actually have a healthier emotional life than those who are left for long periods of time without physical contact. You guys know this, if your parents, kids love to cuddle with mommy or wrestle with daddy or ride on his back. And though it diminishes when they're teenagers, it never goes away. For some adults, physical touch is their primary love language. Without it, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do. They feel unloved. They, they want to know it. They're emotionally secure in the arms of their spouse. And again, guys, I just say this. Physical touch doesn't always have to lead to the bedroom, okay? Sometimes a back rub is just a back rub. That's from Proverbs 2. I, w- <laughs> I, I won't go into the, into the sexual aspect this week because next week you're actually going to hear from a woman's perspective on relationships. I've invited a special guest. Her name is Jackie Kendall, and she is a Christian speaker and author of Lady in Waiting, and a man worth waiting for. And I invited Jackie to Liquid to close out our series with a message entitled, How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. She is actually going to be teaching about a man's top five needs, a woman's top five needs, that need to be met in order to affair-proof your relationship. And Jackie is a ton of fun. She's very energetic. And after 40 years of marriage ministry, she knows the secret to marriage that she said, lasts longer than a breathman. That's her, that's her line. So you invite a friend next Sunday to hear a woman's perspective on these issues. But this week... You guys got homework, all right? Obviously, I've hit the tip of the iceberg here, and I can recommend to you Gary Chapman's book, Five Love Languages, uh, heartily to any couple who wants to drill down deeper, but you don't even have to buy the book to benefit. A great place to start is to go home today, and this afternoon, you take that online survey at fivelovelanguages.com with your partner. The link's in your bulletin. takes less than 10 minutes, and you don't even need a partner. You can do it for singles. They even have one for kids and for teens, which we're doing with our kids. And you may be surprised by what you discover. Because for Kyle and I, it confirmed some things, but it opened up this whole new conversation about how we can serve one another better. It's, it, it's ro- look, guys, it's romantic to assume that your partner should just know how to love you, but it's unrealistic. And it's- is, is this really all that I need to do in order to fulfill this command from God? Oh, man, 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 man. So you're leaving with a to-do list, get to it, and uh, you know, website to visit and all this kind of stuff. Again, there's nothing wrong at all. In fact, it's a good thing to work on your marriage relationship. But this wasn't a sermon. I mean, each text that he touched was basically just to kind of springboard back into the main body of his sermon, which is the five love languages. And talking about, well, of course, you know, he's a good example of the guy who gets all of these love languages and and he is the perfect model. So he put himself forward as the person to follow, not Christ. Yep, we continue. And it's even a bit unfair to expect that if you're unwilling to communicate how you receive love best. This is a chance to become bilingual this spring 
and serve your spouse like Jesus. So talk about the results together, and then I want you to ask him a dangerous question. Hey, sweetheart, honey bunch, what can I do to fill your tank this week? Is it act of service, uh, quality time? You, you, want, you want to ditch the kids and go out for ice cream together? <laughs> it can be a fresh way to stimulate your relationship. As Jesus told his followers in John 13, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must say it together, church, love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. So even pagans that, uh, you know, have a good marriage and they've learned how to communicate in the five love languages, they're, they're, they're disciples of Jesus, right? This spring, learn a new love language. Because when you do it motivated by Christ, it doesn't matter how your partner responds. If they reciprocate, if they understand, it doesn't matter. Because when one person in a relationship makes the sacrifice to change, guess what? The relationship itself inevitably changes too. Love deepens, it grows, and Christ gets the glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Bow our heads, all our campuses. Done, done, done. Wow, what a mess. So you see the problem? It's what I talked about in my lecture in Albuquerque. Opinulagus, second table of the law. All of this taught in such a way that, uh, hey, you know, you screwed up on this. Here's what you need to do to apply this so that you can obey it. Yet you haven't obeyed it. You have fallen short. You have not loved your wife, your neighbor, whomever, as yourself. No absolution. The cross was in the text. But he had no idea how to hook it all up. And what they didn't hear is that Christ bled and died for each and every time where they haven't loved their spouse the way Christ has loved the church. Man, all law. The gospel didn't make sense, just as an example to follow. All command. Oh, and here's the steps to how to do it. Just uh, read this book on the five love languages. You don't have to buy it. Just go and... Go to the website and fill out the, uh, the the test and find out what your love language is and, and be intentional about committing yourself to, you know, applying these in your marriage and your relationships. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But your right standing before God is not achieved by this. And when you have not lived up to what Christ has said there and what Scripture says, you've fallen short. You need to repent. You need to be forgiven. You need to hear that Christ has bled and died for that. This is sanctification in a real sense, completely unbuckled from the cross because he doesn't know how to hook it up to the cross, even though the text that he was reading from did that. Exactly. Yeah, this is a formula for burnout because what's going to happen next week when the people show up to church? They're going to be given another to-do list and another to-do list the week after that and the week after that, another to-do list. Yeah, good luck keeping up. You you won't be able to do it. This is what causes people to completely flame out uh, in uh, American evangelicalism. Why? Because over time, you just can't keep up. You can't measure up because all of this is all law. This is not this is not law gospel preaching. This is second table of the law preaching, with some kind of a tacit understanding. Well, if I do this, God's going to be okay with me. And your your relationship with God is not based upon you keeping the law, but about, about Christ keeping it for you and dying and bleeding for your sins. Uh, what would you think? 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>